bringing all the influences that create and deliver hospitality to us, the places around the world we enjoy. It begins with design, beautiful food, and a passion of bringing people together. Hospitality is about making people remember how they felt when visiting your space. It takes more than a village to make the magic happen. Hospitality Nations brings those magic makers to you. I grew up in Iowa and my father was an architect and an immigrant and my mother is a full-blooded American I would say for the most part and so I grew up in kind of a an interesting you know I grew up in Iowa which is not an interesting place but the people that we hung out with were interesting my parents' best friends were all Europeans for the most part, Italians, Syrians, Japanese. And so we did a lot of cultural things growing up as kids. We'd go to Chicago and go to the Field Museum for the day. We'd go see old movies at the, you know, art museum. Our dads, you know, we had a, a group of people who were really into art and design and, and literature and politics. And so you know, we got to participate in a lot of those kinds of discussions with our, our, between our family friends. And so I have to say, you know, I was looking for a little bit more <laughs> from life than living in Iowa. So I moved to, you know, New York as soon as it was possible for me to do that. And when I felt prepared for life to do that, and that was kind of when I finished college for the most part. But um, in school and college, I, I studied liberal arts, I studied art, art history, I studied metalsmithing and jewelry. So that's kind of where I got my, and I, but I did a lot of things. I did weaving and photography and, you know, I was just a very artistic and because there was nothing else to do there, it was a very, I could be very, how do I say it? I was very productive. <laughs> so I did a lot of of art projects and, and also was involved in a band. I was in music. Um, you know, we were very into like punk and alternative music and what was going on in Europe because Europe was like at the forefront of, you know, alternative music and reading NME all the time. And, you know, I, you know, I don't know if, you know, that era was like a whole new avenue of an opening for, you know, myself, my crowd, my art crowd, because there was a lot of performance art going on and, and a lot of things having to do with music and art and, and you know, um, together and just this whole thing that kind of blossomed at that time, kind of in the 80s. And I moved to New York about that time and kind of started working in nightclubs and with, in music. And I was an art mover because I had a lot of museum experience when I lived in Iowa. I worked at the art museum. And so it was... What is uh, an art mover, Christine? Can what, you define what? what an art mover is? Art movers, well, we moved all the artwork in and out of the galleries and museums in New York City, pretty much. So we had the Warhol collection. So... All of Larry Gagosian's artwork we stored. We moved into in and out of his galleries. Marion Goodman, Paula Cooper, you know, all the, you know, 
90s kind of icons of artwork uh, and art galleries. We had all the major galleries and saw a lot of amazing stuff. So, but all my friends were artists and we all worked as art movers and we did installation and we created and documented and got to see amazing stuff. And, um, but you know, nobody was doing anything with their lives. And so that's when I decided to go back to school and study design. And the reason why I didn't do it before was because I was going to school in Iowa. I kind of had a very authoritarian father who really wouldn't let me go any further than his reach kind of thing. So I went to school at Iowa, University of Iowa, which was 45 minutes from my parents. And the only other school that had architecture and design, which it didn't even have interior design, but just architecture was the was in Ames at the Iowa at Iowa State, which was like the agri school. So I couldn't see myself hanging out with a bunch of farmers. So I couldn't really make myself go to Ames. So <laughs> I stayed at Iowa. Iowa had a you know a little bit cooler scene, and so as soon as I could, though, I left and you know moved to New York, and so you know ended up going to school at Parsons put myself through school in Parsons and went to night school and worked during the day and and got another degree in interior design from Parsons and then started on my career in design. And one of the first jobs I had was working for KPF Interior Architects, which was a offshoot of KPF itself, which is a giant architectural firm. Everybody kind of knows they're iconic. And we did amazingly beautiful interior projects, super high-end corporate projects, and ended up working in for, Viacom was one of our first, was one of our big clients, and that was kind of before they had MTV design and planning. They uh, they didn't quite have their design department internally um, sussed out yet, so we did, you know, Nickelodeon, VH1, some of the other, I can't even remember all the stuff they had because they had so many little networks that they worked with. But, you know, so we did a lot of their first forays into TV when new TV channels became the, the norm. And, you know, we got to be super creative and do some really interesting things and start using some interesting materials. And, and then I um, ended up through that experience kind of finding you know, a friend that I had worked with previously had just left Rockwell Group. And she said, she said, they're looking for people. You might really like it. It's a really crazy place to work and they do really fun stuff, but I think you'll like it. So I applied and I got the job and I started working at Rockwell Group. Like, I don't know, it was probably like the mid nineties. I think I was their 300th employee at that point. So and actually, that's my employee number at Rockwell, which every time I go back there, I use because, you know, I had gone back there quite a bit. And so as a consultant and, you know, full time, I had different stints there. But yeah, so that's kind of how I got involved in hospitality design and, and kind of have seen how it has morphed into a very sophisticated rather than thematic, you know, design genre, so to speak. When I first started working at Rockwell, we did a thematic architecture, so it was Planet Hollywood. And there was a big market for it then because it was a more immersive experience. Even, you know, cruise ships, we did Disney cruise ships back then, and we were doing 
you know, really interesting restaurants, things that kind of were theatrical and morphed. And we used a lot of set designers to create our interiors because nobody else was really working in that, so to speak, in art within interior architecture itself, as far as contractors went. So we had to find people who were specialty vendors who would do like resins or cast. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of Mohican Sun, but we Mohican Sun was probably one of the first casinos that actually had. What do I want to say? It's an it was an immersive American Indigenous Indian experience where we took icons from the tribe and, and put them in all the design motifs, including mosaics, and created, you know, the, the main bar at Mohegan Sun is called the Wolf Den, and it was basically a, looked like a rocky cave in the side of a mountain with, you know, wolves and everything. It was, it was a little crazy, but it was really cool. It was probably one of the first that actually looked quite like that. That wasn't, you know, the Tropicana with palm trees and shit like that. So it was, it was definitely, and things evolved from there, you know, uh, the evolution of thematic hospitality architecture definitely became more sophisticated from there on out. But I think what those early days kind of proved was like, you could do anything and you wanted to create something that was memorable and palpable and, now everything's a backdrop for an Instagram selfie. So now when you design, you try to think of like, where would be a good place for people to do that? I mean, it's kind of, it's a little crazy how, how much things have evolved in, in that way. But, you know, also very cool. You know, there's a lot of cool stuff going on out there. You know, the last project that I worked on, one of the big ones was the Seminole Hard Rock in Hollywood, Florida, where we did this incredible entry, Port Cachier entry, Oculus, that had a, a skylight, but we created this amazing immersive music experience where you walk in and you just feel like you're in the heartbeat of the building. And there's a music thing, you know, there's music all around you. So there's music playing and then these glass screens um, that have, the, you know, the the screen is built into the glass itself. So there's water coming down over it sometimes and then beautiful um, imagery, underwater imagery, sound waves, all sorts of stuff. And, and then, you know, this mist curtain that comes down and, and it kind of creates a hologram. And I mean, it is just, it's so out there. It's so amazing and beautiful and, you know, incredible. I want to see that. That sounds amazing to go. Next time you go to Fort Lauderdale or Miami, I would highly suggest it. Um, it's probably the most unique casino you'll ever be in, honestly. And early days at Rockwell, what was the, the culture like, the company culture? Well, I mean, it was, gosh, I mean, we were, we were kind of like a family. It's sort of like being in a frat, you know, in a way, or a sorority where, everybody's kind of putting in massive hours. Everything was really insane. We used computers, but, you know, we didn't yet have the ability to scan PDF stuff from the internet or a lot of things weren't on the internet yet, like imagery and stuff like that. We didn't have that access. So we'd have to like photograph books and use 
images from books and magazines and things visually that we would find to put on our, our boards. And also they were taping fabric and wood and all this and stone and all this stuff onto boards. And it was so insane. And just the amount of assemblage required. I mean, they were like art projects, you know? And so it was, you know, we worked a lot of hours, you know, it was, sometimes it was a little crazy. It was much very hands-on. I mean, we worked on one floor of Rockwell and it was such a mess. It, what we were on top of each other. I mean, my desk was two file cabinets with a door on top of it. And then we had one of those multi-plugs and there were about, I don't know, like five multi-plugs plugged into one multi-plug. And then all the people in the room that I was in, like we had all our stuff lumped into the multi-plugs. It was so crazy. You could barely walk through the hallways. There were so many boards and, and materials just piled up everywhere. And it was insane. But the cool thing about it was that we were all really tight. We worked on these projects like you know, we've, it was like a big charrette all the time. So, you know, it was like being in studio in school or something. And we had a lot of interaction with each other. And, you know, there was a lot of innovation going on. Like, I mean, we created so many things that hadn't been done before, like embedding things in resin and making bar tops out of it, you know, and just trying to figure out how to make a billowy, I don't know, it, it could, I mean, it was just, it was such a challenge constantly and you really had to think on your feet. So it was one of those places, almost like a boot camp. you know, you lasted, you know, most people, some people couldn't last because they just couldn't be that way. And then there are other people who are really hungry for it. So that's pretty much how it was at the beginning. And David was involved in everything. He always wanted to see everything. And, you know, for all of his, you know, limited taste, you know, I mean, I have to say that he, you know, has always been, now that I know him a little bit better, that he has always been more of a theatrical designer to begin with. And so his interior installations and interior architecture really take, really came from a, a point of view of, of the stage and how to create a stage set. So a lot of those early interiors were almost like stage sets. You know, um, they weren't as impermanent, but that's where they kind of came from. And so creating, sometimes creating an illusion or saying, oh, we're going to do this. And then trying to, you know, trying to figure out how to build things, how to create it. And it was really out of a kit of parts because it's like, well, we can get Paralam and we can get these bolts. And then you'd have to write a spec for that. And the contractor's like, well, how do I do black and steel? And so we'd have to, you know, get the patina, get this, figure out what steel worked best and then write a spec for it. So it was kind of like, I remember having to create these things because people didn't know how to do them. And it was, it was pretty cool to be involved in that. And that was kind of the beginning of, you know, when Rocco, you know, when he came from just doing restaurants into doing like really big projects. But, you know, I feel kind of lucky to have been able to be part of that evolution because it helped me evolve too. And that's a really interesting concept as you you know your journey going in and out of Rockwell doing your own projects. You've changed obviously and grown. How did you find what was going on in the industry paralleling interior 
look at of how you approach spaces? Well, you know, that's a really good thing to talk about because what we did at Rockwell and what it trained me to do was we created a story for every single space, right? So it wasn't like we would just say, oh, we're going to make it look modern. There was a story associated with it, somehow associated with the project, somehow you know, like when we did W hotels and came up with a concept for W, we, you know, thought about, you know, what is most important these days and, and green was, you know, this is before the lead even, right? Green was very much on every, but trying to create green spaces, trying to create spaces that we weren't killing a, a rainforest for, you know what I mean? And so to W, they wanted a more organic experience. It's kind of like, um, almost like addition or one, how one is now is what W started out as back then. And the first, you know, W hotel was, you know, slip covered furniture, you know, something that felt more natural that could be laundered and kind of recycled instead of having to be completely recovered or completely redone. You know, we could just change the covering to freshen it, to make it look new, planting grass and planters in the rooms to make it feel like there was, it was less antiseptic or less hotel-like, more homey, you know what I mean? A more comfortable, casual, like a natural home kind of interior experience. So, you know, that, you know, that concept and creating that was like, I was pretty innovative at the time. And now looking at it, I mean, it's almost done like a 360 in terms of where we at right now. Yes. I know it's weird, right? Yeah, I mean, you you speak about being organic and not being, you know, well, sterile. W, is, w isn't like that anymore, though. They completely changed their concepts into something that was more edgy and millennial, let's say, right? Because their interiors aren't like that anymore. They're more nightclubby now, whereas before they were a lot more elegant. It would, like I said, it was more like a one or an addition, right? That was the original concept of what the W was, was to be like. And then it morphed from that into something else. It so is, it is more of a nightclub. If I think about the W in Seminyak in Indonesia and in Bali with the DJ spinning at the bottom. I mean, it's fun. It's a fun environment. Yeah, but it's loud and it's, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's cool. You know, and it definitely, it has its, its own look, but, you know, it also evolved because then what happened with W and with Starwood, they came up with other concepts, right? So they took that old concept of W and they rehashed it in one, right? So that was their original concept for W and they rehatched it as one hotel's. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It diverged, it came back together, it came out as something else, you know, which is, you know, because it was a great concept. So I think it was really interesting evolution. I'm kind of like having a catharsis right now, <laughs> you know, talking about it. But uh, yeah, and that was kind of like, you know, that and Morgan's, and they were the, you know, the, on the forefront. But anyway, that was, you know, that evolution. And you know, and then just how restaurants evolved too, you know, it was. How do you um, take us through where you think restaurant design is right now? 
post-COVID. We're well, not we're in COVID, we're not post-COVID. But well, it's, listen, it's I think that, you know, we're going to have a little more social distancing, obviously. I think that's not such a bad thing. It's like, you know, there's one thing I hate about restaurants is being too close to other people. So I think that having, you know, the ability to have a little bit of privacy is not such a bad thing. I like the idea of having more screening and more intimate spaces. I think that's a good thing. And, you know, I don't like sitting next to strangers. Nobody does, right? So I don't know. I think it's going to change a little bit, but I don't think it's going to change a great deal as far as like, you know, the design obviously will change to create smaller pods for now. And I don't know how, if that's even going to last that long, depending on what happens with a vaccine in the coming year or so. But, you know, for now, if you want to go out to eat, you know, it's like people aren't going to want to sit next to people they don't know. So I think we're very lucky that right now, as, as we're able to open things up and be outside more, that we can dine outside. Thank God for that. And I mean, when you look at Europe, for instance, I mean, people definitely dine in when it's cold outside, but for the most part, it's all al fresco. Everybody pulls their stuff out in the summer, you know, and I guess part of that has to do with, you know, our dependence on air conditioning to some degree, you know, because Europe is a little more, you know, the climate's a little bit different. It's not quite as hot as it is here in a lot of places. But, you know, I think that it's not such a bad thing. I'm not worried about people preparing my food. You know, I think that people who are preparing my food should wear a mask all the time. And I know it's hot, but there's got to be a way because they're sweating and, you know, having to cough and, you know, whatever. It's like, you know, that should just be a normal part of food service, I think. Yes, I agree. I agree. I think that the communal space, like communal table in a restaurant, do you think that will go away? Well, not necessarily, because I think that there's still, like, for instance, I went out with, a, with some of my COVID, my COVID group. So I live in an apartment building, and there are a couple of us that live at one end of it, and we all hang out together. And so we went out to dinner one night, and we had a communal table all to ourselves away from all the other diners which I think works, you know, if you want to go out with a big party and more than six people and you feel safe, honestly, I don't think we're going to be able to do that for a while, you know, dine in situations or, you know, maybe there's more private dining rooms. I mean, look at, you know, Chinese restaurants, for instance, or, you know, private dining is a big thing in, in China, in uh, Asian restaurants in general. So, you know, maybe there's more private dining for large parties. And like I said, maybe there's more, there's more, you know, when you're using a banquette that creates some kind of barrier, you know, I think I love the intimacy of sitting in a, in a booth with a screen in between my back and the back of the other, of the next booth, because you feel like you have more privacy, you know, I think that that's an, a, that's a good thing, you know, so I think that that should be, you know, a natural part of how we design restaurants. You know, so many times people get small spaces and they try to cram in as many people as they can. You know, maybe that's not necessarily the best option. Just like, I think I agree, like cramming people into a small space, you can use screens. 
cleverly and you know and with that's designed creatively to create like an illusion of of little pods it doesn't need to be like jam pack them against the wall because that's all you've got in your square footage to you know to see people yeah but if you're facing the same way and you put a screen in between you and the next group you know a barrier of some kind i mean you know i just think there's a listen, we've been designing restaurants and using tables and chairs a certain way for a really long time. And maybe there's a better way to do that, you know, because so often what they're doing now is they're placing people facing out the same direction, right? So there's no, and then staggering them. So I think that, I don't know, I think that just like in office design or workplace design, how they're going to have to stagger people in that kind of situation. Maybe we come up with something new in dining that makes more sense. I just think that, I don't know. I just, you know, I feel bad for people who have small restaurants. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know what to say to them, but. That's maybe. the New York dining scene, right? Small, beautiful. Well, they're either going to have to raise their prices or they're going to have to, you know, or be open longer, or I don't, I don't know, have longer hours, do breakfast. I don't know. It's like, it's just going to suck for a while. I mean, I can, I'm thinking of one specific one, like in my old neighborhood that I lived in, in Brooklyn, that was this small restaurant, amazing food, lines out the door constantly, but you were packed in like sardines. You could barely, like the waiters could barely move through there. There were so many people crammed in. And it's like that, I don't think that's not going to fly anymore. So how are they going to manage that? That's what I'm kind of wondering about a little bit. They're in a residential neighborhood. They can't have people on the street eating because it's too loud. And that's the thing in Europe, you can fine al fresco with people living above you, but it's a different culture. Yeah. So I think it, you know what? So that's a good point. Maybe we'll change culturally a little bit. And I think it's a good thing, right? Because I think that people need to be a little more conscious of others. And I think that dining should be, I'd rather cook from home. You know, I, I, I cook up a storm. I cook great food. It's like, if I can't get amazing food, I don't even want to go out to eat. You know, I don't need to go and get a burger someplace. It's like, if I can, you know, if I can cook one as good or make a salad, go out for a salad, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, it's like sushi. Yes. You know, that I don't do well, <laughs> you know, but you know, it's, it's kind of like, I just think it, maybe it's going to change the way we go out. How has your work life changed with COVID? How, communicating with people, project clients, what does it now look well, like? Well, I mean, everything's kind of at a standstill right now. So, you know, there are people that are still working. Like I talked to, the HR person at Rockwell, Nina Stern, and to ask her in preparation for this, what they were doing at Rockwell, how they were preparing. Because, you know, that they have two and a half floors of people. You know, they, I'm like, you know, did you have to let go of a lot of people? She said, well, we did a little bit of everything. We laid people off, we furloughed, and then, you know, there were still people that had, that we still have work. And, but, you know, a lot of things just kind of dropped off the map. So they've been spending their time doing outdoor dining for restaurants. Like they did Melba's in Harlem recently that just reopened and they, you know, they placed everything and they've kind of 
are working with their clients to revise how their seating is and how they can make it work so that they can continue to stay open and continue to do business. But, you know, so many people are out of work. Nobody had, there's no work right now. And I think everybody's kind of waiting to see what happens. And that's, you know, like one thing I did over the summer because I've been consulting a lot. I consult with Rockwell, Jeffrey Beers. I've consulted with Sean Palamode, you know, and it's like, this is all in the last 10 years or so. But, you know, what I realized was instead of, you know, making money for other people, I can make money, this money for myself. And, you know, also not having a lot of overhead and having a lot of people out there who need work, you know, it drives down the fees. So I think it's a good time to try to get, you know, my foot in the door with regards to hotel jobs, restaurants, you know, things that, that I can definitely underbid the larger firms for, but with the kind of experience that they need to create a really cool space. So that's kind of what I've been spending my time doing is redoing my website, reaching out to people, creating a press kit, you know, blogging, you know, trying to get my name out there, you know, getting in touch with people I've worked with before, like all the SVPs of, you know, design and construction I've worked with and seeing if I can get my foot in the door somehow with small project, project, large project, whatever it may be, but preparing myself for that because I feel like there's definitely, you know, everything's cyclical too. So you know, there's definitely a cycle of design and construction and those things kind of, and, and there's a seasonal and it has to do with seasonal, obviously too. So, you know, in the, a lot happens in the fall for construction in the spring. A lot happens in the summer. Um, the summer is traditionally a little bit slow, but usually what happens is in the, in the, winter in January, a new project starts right now is when they're bidding it, sussing it out, assigning the contractors and then construction usually starts in the fall. So there's a cycle of how things work, right? So it's like the winter to summer construction fall cycle and then fall design to winter to spring construction cycle. And then, you know, some things need to happen by the summer, some things need to happen by the winter, you know, depending on if you're talking about a resort or, you know, what kind of market you're talking about in particular, whether it's in Florida, you know, it's like you can't start construction during hurricane season in Florida, you know, you have to wait until after November. So, you know, it's, you know, and that's kind of everywhere, but there's definitely an ebb and a flow to it, you know, so, you know, we're all just waiting it out. It's, you know, it's happened before. It'll write itself again. Your new venture, it's the Christine Schultz Design Firm Studio. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and you can do a whole project with all the contacts and, you know, your experience through so many incredible, incredible, you know, years with Rockwell. Well, I mean, basically what I've been doing for Rockwell and Jeffrey Beers and what I did for Shampala Mode is I would come in and run a whole project. So I'd come in, if I had two, if I had creative teams, I'd manage the creative teams. Sometimes I would be the creative team initially doing concept before we could put a team together, before we knew what was really kind of what we needed as far as team members and, and assigning spaces and things like that. But 
then managing the team, making sure their deliverables happen, making sure they know when their things are, are due. And, you know, on, on, a, on a project like Seminole or, or the Hard Rock in Atlantic City, I mean, we had 30 projects. So not only did you have the casino, but you had hotel lobbies and restaurants and private, you know, gambling, retail, pool deck, you know, it, it was, you know, bars. It was like, you know, so you had to meet out and give those areas to people because, you know, you can just have, you needed like eight teams to do that stuff. It was so much work. So, you know, so I would manage all that and then I do all the construction management as well. So not only did I roll up my sleeves and create construction documents, but then I'd help manage the projects. I definitely had, you know, project architects who would help out with, with a lot of it because I couldn't do everything because I was in meetings all the time. But, um, you know, it was, I've, you know, I've done everything, you know, so I'm pretty sure I can do a big project by myself if I need to, not just individually by myself, but put together a team to do a project. So baby steps, just baby steps. Exciting baby steps. Yeah, you know, and there are a lot of people who don't have work right now, you know, so registered architects, they're interior designers. You know, the thing is like, if you're going to be efficient, you need people who work efficiently and who know what they're doing or creatively are, they can take something and run with it. So that is part of working, you know, when I mentor people, especially millennials these days, what I've noticed is a lot of people just, they go to school, they get a degree, they come in, they get a job and they just kind of do their job, right? Not owning it. And I get like a lot of a lot of it is they get assigned things. It's like, could you do this? Could you do that? Could you do this? Could you do that? And they're like, well, why can't I get my own projects? I'm like, well, you haven't shown initiative to do your own project. You have not shown that you own any part of this project. You just do what you're asked and nothing else. And you leave it, you know, six o'clock every day. So if you really want to be a designer and you really want to get your own stuff and be in charge of your own stuff, be in charge of what you're doing. You know, don't just go through the motions, you know, say, can I lay it out? Yeah, go lay it out. Great. Yeah, that's a great idea. You should do that too. You know, it's like, take some initiative. You have to, it's not just about, you know, executing or going through the motions. It's about being into what you're doing. It's an art form, right? Design is an art form. It's sculpture. It's lighting design, it's engineering, it's a lot of things. So when you see, you know, a project you're working on and see the space, how do you, how do you see it? How do you want it to feel, right? And so it's like getting them to think that way, you know, getting the youngsters to think that way. And, and you know, some of them like, you know, if you don't really like this, what do you really want to do? You know, I'm, I'm not sure why you did this in the first place. You know, some people are like, oh, I want to, I really want to teach. I'm like, well, go back to school and be a teacher. You'll be much happier. You know, there's definitely people who are f- made for it. That's all I have to say. I'm going to end it there. <laughs> well, that, that leads a really good segue to a question of what advice would you give to someone starting out in the industry or a younger Christine? Well, I mean, you know, just that in and of itself. It's like, you know, 
that that I've noticed is epidemic. That's an epidemic of what the attitude of millennials is for the most part. And I find too that, you know, they feel like they should just be able to do stuff, right? Like they should just come in and somebody else should give them a project. And I'm like, uh, you don't know anything yet. <laughs> you know, it's like, you have to learn. And the only way you're going to learn is by taking the bull by the horns. If you show initiative to do that, I have no problem letting you do that but you have to show me that you really want it. You know, you kind of have to really want it. There are a lot of people out there who think they can design. There are a lot of people out there who can be an interior designer just because they watch a show or they, you know, read a magazine, you know, but it, it's hard, you know, it's not an easy thing. Like I said, it's an art form. So it's like, if, if you're artistic, then you can do this, but you have to have the attitude that, you know, you have to pay your dues. You got to show that you have, what it takes to people for them to give you the responsibility to do that because it's not just pick something out and let it be. It needs to work. You need to, you're representing, a lot of times you're representing a company, right? So if I'm representing Jeffrey, Jeffrey Beers, if I'm a consultant for him and I'm designing for him, I'm going to make sure that he is happy with everything I'm doing because it's his name, right? So whatever I do is defending my design for who, you know, whatever company I'm working for. And, you know, with Sean Pauli Mode, for instance, you know, they, they're very high end. There's no compromising. I wouldn't even get into fights with people about it. Said, We're not doing that. We're doing it the way we designed it. So don't even think about it. And that I just had to put my foot down. So it's like, I don't know. I think that, you know, you have to, the younger Christine was, was hungry. She worked her ass off. She got to do what she got to do because she was creative and worked her little patootie off. That's what I tell young people starting these days. You know, nobody's going to give you anything if you don't deserve it. I mean, that's not even a these days thing. That's a, that's a like all days thing. That's for anybody who's working. And I mean, in your years, have you seen projects go pear-shaped where people just aren't experienced enough or haven't paid their dues? Well, any, anybody who's doing a large project. Well, you know what? It's interesting. It, it's hard to say because, you know, I'm, I've been in situations where, for instance, at Gensler, we were the AOR for projects and they give it to a designer who was very creative, but really didn't know what the F they were doing. Right. So you have to kind of step in and help them. But you know what? You freaking help people. You know, you get them there. If they're not there yet, you get them there. You give them tools to get where they need to go. You need to manage people properly, right? That's part of it. It's like asking people how they're doing, if they're comfortable with what they're doing. Would you rather be doing something else? What is it that you really, really like to do? You know, it's like I would have designers who were drafting. I'm like, you are really bad at this. And they're like, well, I'm a 3D designer. I'm like, well, we need the 3D designer. Why do you tell us that? We would be happy to let you do 3D stuff. We need that all the time. You know, on Seminole, we needed 3D design of every space on every little thing, you know, because, the, you know, so the client could see it. And so, you know, it was, so, you know, it's like moving people into the right place, giving them into the right space for them too. Because sometimes people who are managing them don't ask them the question. 
They don't ask them the right questions. They just let them do, and then they fail because they're not either working with the right people, they're not working on the right task. A lot of times people don't mesh well. They don't, they don't like, they might be a great designer, but they might not get along with their superior, you know, like their studio leader or something. And so sometimes they'll thrive better in a different studio with some other group of people, you know? That's not to say that they're, like they're screwing up or, or anything like that, they're not in the right environment. So I think a lot of times you have to move people a little bit to get them in the right space, you know? Put them in the right seat. Yeah. And Christine, tell us about your passions outside of design. My passions outside of design. Your hobbies. <laughs> well, that's a toughie because it's so all-encompassing. Um, you know, I'm a creative person, so, you know, I love doing little creative projects. I don't do, you know, anything specific, but I'll say, oh, I think today I'll make a macrame plant hanger, and I'll be like, oh, okay, let me go get some stuff to do that. You know, I'm kind of like that kind of person, or outside of... Honestly, you know, when you work in design, you work so much that it's hard to even have other things you like to do outside. But I do love, you know, I go to the beach, you know, I have a motorcycle. I like to ride my motorcycle in the mountains. You know, I love to ski. I, you know, I spend a lot of time doing that kind of stuff. I'm always busy. I'm always busy doing something. You know, I'm never, I'm not one of those people. I don't sit around and watch TV a lot. So, you know, I'm either working on, you know, Honestly, I've been working on blogging, teaching myself how to blog and, you know, about design and with my new website, I've had to create a, you know, business Instagram account and a business page for LinkedIn. And so I've been trying to figure out, you know, what kinds of content to put on both because they're different, right? So it takes a lot of time. It takes a, a hell of a lot of time to do that, you know creating a blog. I mean, I love uh, discovering new things about design. I mean, I, I love modern, modern design and modern architecture. I love it. So it's, it's like, I like learning about like, you know, there's this, do you know about the A, um, A design uh, and competition awards? Yes. A apostrophe. I just found out about that. Because I was on Pinterest and I found a link to something that I was looking at and I found this thing. I'm like, oh my God, who knew? I've never even heard of this before, you know? And so I'm looking at the stuff that's on there and I'm like, wow, they are, they so blow away North American architecture and design in a way. Because, I mean, some people are, you know, have actually, you know, entered the competition, but it's like people from all over the world, you know, they're people from Latvia you know, designing armchairs that win awards. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing stuff. You know, so I, I get really inspired by stuff like that. And I like to be inspired by stuff like that. I'm just like, my brain is, my brain is going a million miles an hour. I've got a line of planters I've been designing. I'm thinking maybe I'll do an e-commerce site where I can sell cool stuff that I find, you know, that's security. I mean, I've, you know, <laughs> I've got notebooks of stuff written down. So... That's kind of what I like to do. And Christine, how can people find you? How can they find me? They can find me on Instagram. I'm CS Interior D. So my handle's CSID. So Christine Schultz Interior Design. 
And then on LinkedIn, same thing. I have a business page, same way. You know, it's been really interesting kind of massaging Instagram, for instance, the feed for my business page on Instagram, you know, what I want to see when I go onto my feed. And I want to see beautiful interiors, architecture, fashion, art, all those things. All those things influence the way we design, period. So I want to see the innovation. You know, lately I've been um, finding more uh, black designers. Like there are a crap ton of black designers in America and in the New York City area. And I'm like, oh my God, there's some really amazing people and really amazing talent out there that I've just like tapped into. And it's, it's a little crazy. You know, there's so much to be discovered. And I mean, a lot of it is like, it gets to the point where it's like too much already, but I don't know. It's like being at, I feel like when you're at home like this in a, in a quarantine, this is a time where you decide what your life is going to be like moving forward because you have time to do that. You know what I mean? No, that's amazing. Christine, thank you so much for coming on and being a guest on our podcast. We, we've loved having you. And we look forward to seeing where the journey takes you. And me too. Brand. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to see how it, how it susses out myself. I mean, I'm, I'm so excited for the future. And I think that, you know, this time in our lives is a huge turning point. And I think this year is a huge turning point for all of us. So I look forward to the future and I hope everybody uses their time wisely to, you know, create better people, be better people, figure out what they really want out of life and be happy and treat each other with kindness. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to the show to hear from more amazing people in the industry. Visit our website at stylenations.com to see more stories about our guests featured on our blog. We love sharing their stories and bringing people together.